The following study is a Sunday morning lesson given by Pastor Brett Metter at Athey Creek Christian Fellowship. Let's get right to it. Why don't you grab your Bible and turn in the Scriptures this morning with me to Isaiah chapter 17. Isaiah 17. We, uh, we're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the Bible. And um, we, uh, we uh, normally take a small verse. But I wanted to this morning uh, cover this chapter because this chapter uh, is one of those prophecies that I think is fascinating as it relates to the days that you and I live in. And, um, and so I think it's going to be really good to cover this whole chapter. Um, it's, it's a short chapter, small but mighty, uh, and it deals with some, some of the themes we've been talking about um, quite a bit. By the way, if you missed our prophecy update on Friday night, um, man, I'd, I'd recommend that you catch up on that as it kind of relates to what's going on in the world and um, a little bit of the, the, you know, the way that the world is shaping up and the stage is being set for what the Bible says is going to happen. Like it's, it's really profound how accurate the scriptures, even though it is written by 40 different authors over a 1,500-year period, you know, uh, three different continents. It's like it's amazing that um, the, the Bible perfectly predicts what would happen thousands of years in the future. Um, and things that are technologically impossible for us to even understand, let alone, you know, people like the Apostle John and others, you know, a cashless society, a mark where people could buy or sell uh, only if you have that mark. And we talked about all those things um, on Prophecy Update as it relates to some of the stuff that's happening uh, in the world. And so I uh, really recommend if you want to catch up on that. Wednesday night, we were looking in Isaiah, you know, 14, 15, 16. And those chapters, we were talking about everything from the abomination of desolation, which is talked about by both Daniel the prophet and Jesus and the book of Revelation. And, uh, and we talked about how that kind of plays in. And that's the thing about the book of Isaiah. One thing that makes Isaiah a little tricky, uh, but, but also sort of fun uh, to be able to go through the book of Isaiah, is how he sort of bobs and weaves. Isaiah goes in and out of the near and far prophetic uh, interpretations of, uh, of uh, prophecy, I should say, because um, sometimes he's, he's, it's almost like he's talking about his local situation, which he is. We call that the near prophecy. But he also goes and starts talking about a bigger, more future still prophecy. We call that the far prophecy, the near and the far. And, uh, and he bobs and weaves kind of in and out of that. And, and it's something, by the way, the whole Bible does. Daniel does that uh, and what have you. But, um, but uh, here in Isaiah, Isaiah really goes in and out of that. And we'll see that even here in Isaiah 17. There's both a near and a far application. And, and, and there's some things that you should know as a Bible student. There's little clues that you and I will come across as we read the book of Isaiah that sort of flag, man, it seems like he's moving more into that far description. We talked about this on Wednesday night. One of the things you can see is when he starts talking more globally and less locally. When you hear him talking about Jerusalem or, you know, um, the, the northern tribes of Ephraim and, and uh, some of those things, you realize he's talking about the local um, current day at his time, current day, uh, you know, application. But then when he starts talking about all the nations of the world, in fact, there's some, there's some phrases like, in that day, uh, what day? Well, there's the day of the Lord that's coming. 
And the day of the Lord is um, when the rapture of the church happens, the tribulation kicks into gear, and the millennial kingdom ultimately starts to uh, happen. Um, That's when the Lord intervenes with humanity. Right now, he's taking sort of a a role where um, humanity has their own little miniature sovereignty. God gave us our own free will, and Satan is still on the move. Um, But there's coming a day, it's called the day of the Lord, and it's not a literal day, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a time period, it's a season um, when the Lord is going to step in and intervene. That's the kind of language you look for, is in that day, or, um, you know, um, you know and also the global sort of thing. We'll see that here uh, in Isaiah 17. So uh, let's review just a little bit the local situation. Isaiah is the prophet, speaking the voice of the Lord to the to the southern two tribes, particularly, which is Judah. Remember, there was a civil war shortly after Solomon was the king. And that war divided Israel into two. And the the ten northern tribes, um, either called Israel, sometimes the northern ten tribes were called Ephraim. It was was the bigger tribe, and Ephraim sort of became uh, sort of a a nickname, if you would, for uh, the northern ten tribes, Ephraim or Israel. The southern two tribes uh, Benjamin and Judah, they were the t- tribes that became um, sort of the, what is just called Judah. Um, so there's Judah and Israel, civil war. It'd be like in our civil war. We had the north and the south, uh, and it was a war, and they were trying to secede from the union of the United States. Uh, that's, that's what happened. Uh, the northern tribes did separate themselves from the southern two tribes. So it was the north, Ephraim, Israel, or the south, Judah, which included Jerusalem, uh, the capital city, and, um, and so those were the days of Isaiah. They were divided. But the northern ten tribes, they sort of um, became more wicked earlier than the south two tribes. Uh, they started getting into stuff that they shouldn't have been getting into. And so it was for that reason they would be the ones, the first ones, to be dragged off into captivity by that most atrocious and scary group of people called the Assyrians. The Assyrians. And Isaiah was spending time prophesying against, um, you know, the northern tribes as the Assyrians would wipe them out. But also uh, the Assyrians would threaten the southern two tribes and even almost wipe them out. Do you remember the story when Rabshakeh, the trash talker, remember that guy we talked about? Him and Sanharib, some people call him Sennacherib. But uh, if you want to say it the way they would have, Sanharib, you got to have that, you know, guttural sort of throat thing going on there with Sanharib. But um, (laughs) they were the Assyrians who came down and they besieged Jerusalem and it seemed that they were doomed. Remember Hezekiah building Hezekiah's tunnel and the water shaft where it was providing water while they were under siege? 180,000 soldiers, uh, Assyrian soldiers surrounding Jerusalem. Isaiah the prophet is going to talk about that story prophetically here in chapter 17. That's sort of the local application of what we're going to be seeing. But his gaze is going to go further than that, out into way in the future, the far interpretation. And it's going to talk about them being gathered against the Jews uh, like they were in this situation, but also in a more global kind of situation where all the nations, not just Syria and Assyria, but all the nations of the world are going to gather against the Jews. And there's kind of a parallel story that would happen way off in the future. And you'll see how Isaiah is going to go from local to global in his description. 
And so I know it sounds confusing, but actually, it, 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 when you see the patterns in the Bible, how there's, there's all these near fulfillment and far fulfillment, you know, an example is the book of Daniel talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, who was that, that guy who came in about 170 BC and, you know, uh, committed sort of an abomination of desolation there in the temple in Jerusalem um, and uh, smeared pig's blood all over the temple and made the priests drink pig's blood. If you remember that story, that was a near application of Daniel's prophecy but then Daniel would start talking in future how it would be global. And there would come a world leader who would make war against the Jews like Antiochus, maybe even having the same spirit of evil that Antiochus Epiphanes had, but it would be this coming world leader called Antichrist. And you see Daniel chapter 10, Daniel chapter 11, sort of talk about that dual fulfillment of prophecy. By the way, there's even examples in the Bible of a triple fulfillment of similar prophecies and what have you. So that's kind of the fun thing about the Bible. I always crack up when people say, yeah, yeah, I've read the Bible. I got it down. It's like they've read it, like they read a book, you know, a story or something. If you've read the Bible only on, a, on that level, you're missing probably uh, tons of stuff because I think you could make a lifetime study of the Bible and never fully see the layer upon layer that the Bible offers to us. Um, when it comes to Bible prophecy, um, it is sort of re- re- concealed in mystery, but it was meant to be revealed as time goes by. The, f- the closer we get to the day of the Lord, the more we'll start to understand these mysteries of Bible prophecy. That's one of the things the Bible says of itself. So all that to say, Isaiah 17 is this interesting prophecy, and the far prophecy uh, about this I believe we're seeing the stage set for this to happen so much. It's, it's profound, and hopefully we'll tie it up with that by the time we're done. So let's take a look, Isaiah chapter 17, and it deals with the burden of Damascus. Isaiah's passing out the woes, and he's passing out the burdens for these nations and cities. You know, Damascus would be a, the capital city of Syria, not Assyria, Syria, um, who was also an enemy of Israel along with the Assyrians. And so that's what we're going to be looking at is the burden of Damascus. It says in verse 1 of chapter 17, the burden of Damascus. Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap. The cities of Eror are forsaken. They shall be for flocks which shall lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So if you'll pause there, the first two verses we are talking about the city of Damascus, how it would become a ruinous heap. And it it would, it would be, uh, you know, uh, destroyed by enemies and many times over throughout history. But one thing that we need to uh, acknowledge is it's never been completely destroyed and never been uninhabited. Uh, Keep that tucked away as we read this. So Damascus, now, by the way, where is Damascus? You know, it's one of those cities you you maybe you hear of in the Bible. And some of you would maybe associate Damascus with that city where Paul the Apostle, when he was Saul of Tarsus, uh, before he was, was Paul, he was Saul, and he was an evil persecutor of the church. And he was on his way up to Damascus, on the road to Damascus, where he was met by the Lord Jesus himself. And he was knocked off his high horse and was blinded temporarily. And remember the Lord said, you know, um, you're the one who's persecuting me. Me, Jesus said to Paul. And that's when Paul became Paul the Apostle. It's a great story. Now, if you've been to Israel with me, um, which I know quite a few of you have, uh, or if you've been to Israel, there's some cool stuff there in in this part of the story. Where's Damascus? Well, 
when we go up to Mount Bental, up on the Golan Heights there, we take our group up to this really high mountain in the Golan Heights that looks over into Syria. And it's this great place where we sit on this bunker uh, from the wars of Israel and the Arab-Israeli wars, and there's barbed wire still around and and, uh, landmines. In fact, there's fences that say do not cross because there's still active landmines up on the roads there, and you don't want to be going off the trail too much up there. Uh, but we're up there on this hill looking into Syria, and, and it's, as the, the sun goes down and it gets dark, on a clear night you can see the, the glow off in the horizon of the city of Damascus. That's how close it is. Um, it's so close that you can see the glow of the lights of the city of Damascus from Israel. And so we just kind of do a little bit of a prophecy thing up there on, the, on Mount Bental looking into Damascus. It's pretty cool. Um, but all that to say, there's ISIS there now, there's Hezbollah there now, um, and Syria is a total mess right now. Damascus is a dangerous city, um, and uh, we'll talk more about that in a second. But uh, Damascus, um, also that road to Damascus, if you've been to Israel with me, when we stop at Nimrod's castle, which is um, a uh, Ottoman Turk crusader-like castle, it was built by the, the Turks, actually, not the crusaders, but, um, but it looks, they copied the Crusader castle. So it's this really cool castle that's in ruin um, that was built like in the 1300s, I believe. Um, but all that to say, uh, that's the road that goes by that Nimrod's castle is the road that Paul would have been on to Damascus when Jesus showed up. So that's kind of the most famous part of Damascus in the Bible is Paul's journey to Damascus. It's that Syrian capital city. Um, and it's one of the oldest cities in the world. In fact, some would argue it is the oldest uh, city in the world. Oldest meaning the, the longest of, of cities where people have lived there from the longest of time. And, um, and that's Damascus. That's an interesting thing that plays into this prophecy. So here Isaiah says there's a burden of Damascus, speaking of Syria, the capital of Syria, during this time period. And what does he go on to say? He says there in verse 3, the fortress also shall cease from Ephraim. Remember, Ephraim is an idiom for the name of the northern ten tribes of Israel. Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria, they shall be as the glory of the children of Israel, saith the Lord of hosts. Um, uh, so this idea of Ephraim, uh, that's where that Nimrod fortress would have been, the, the northernmost section of Israel where they would have had a fortress to protect themselves. It's basically saying that that, that fortress, fortress will fail them uh, when it comes to their own protection. And the king, kingdom of Damascus, the remnant of Syria, they shall be as the glory of the children of Israel. The idea is that's being sarcastic. The Lord said they'll be as the glory of, of, the, um, of the children of Israel, saith the Lord of hosts. That's, that's not a good thing because their glory didn't last. And that's what's going to happen to the Syrians. Their glory will not last. So it's kind of this sarcastic statement from the Lord. And he goes on and says, verse 4, and in that day, there's one of those red flags you should look, look at when he says, and in that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob, another name for Israel, shall be made thin, and the fatness of his flesh shall wax lean. Throughout all of Israel's histories, there's times where Israel was fat and happy, and there were times when they were lean and in real trouble. And um, both the near prophecy that we're going to talk about today and the far, is gonna, it's going to happen to Israel where that they were once fat and happy, and they were going to soon be lean and in trouble. 
Uh, in Israel's day, that's what, uh, pardon me, in Isaiah's day, that's what would happen. They'd end up in real trouble. And then he describes that where they'll wax lean and their fatness of their flesh shall be in trouble, thin. Verse 5, and it shall be as when the harvestman gathereth the corn and reapeth the ears with his arm, and it shall be that as he that gathered ears in the valley of Rephaim, which is the valley of the giants. A uh, whole other story there about Nephilim and all that. Yet, verse 6, uh, gleaning grapes shall be left in it as the shaking of, of an olive tree of the uppermost bough, four or five uh, in the outmost fruitful branches thereof, saith the Lord God of Israel. At that day, a man shall look to his maker and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. Now, here's, here's what Isaiah is basically saying. They're going to be in real trouble. They'll have enemies all around. Their fortress will fail them. And they'll go out to get their food, and they won't be there. There'll be just a few little olives on the extremities of the branches. There would only be a few grapes in their vineyard, not enough to, to bring life-sustaining food and sustenance. They were going to be in real trouble. And that's what happened, by the way, uh, during the time of the besieging of, of Jerusalem and also of the northern ten tribes. They found themselves in famine and real trouble. Israel in the future is also going to find themselves in trouble. Right now, we're seeing Israel fruitful and blessed. Uh, it's an amazing thing to me that Israel is so blessed right now because, you know, it sat in desolation for so long and, and just desert region. But in the last hundred years, Israel's brought the land back to life. It was during the Ottoman Turk era where they, um, you know, uh, taxed all the trees in Israel. And it was during that time, I mentioned it uh, recently, I think it maybe the prophecy update. I forget when I mentioned things, but they taxed the trees. And so everybody cut all the trees down and it changed the, virtually changed the, the whole climate in Israel. It became a barren wasteland. But, but um, then, you know, about a hundred years ago, they really started, you know, doing amazing work. Uh, and now you go through Israel, it's one of the most uh, fruitful, productive regions in all the Middle East. Uh, much of the fruits and the vegetables that are produced from Israel go right up to Europe it's one of the top producers of fruits and vegetables because it's so uh, beautiful there. And uh, they're bringing sort of that climate, that, that tropical climate back, and it's growing all kinds of good stuff. Right now, Israel's in a fairly fat and happy stage. But like Isaiah's time, that, that will come to an end and they'll be in real trouble. That's, that's what's being said. And that, it's talking about that, that day. In that day, the day of the Lord, verse 4, It'll come to pass that they'll, they'll end up in, in a real pickle, in trouble. And then what will happen? See, this is where it gets really interesting, the language that Isaiah uses in verse 7. At that day shall a man look to his maker, capital M, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. Now, this is where Hezekiah and the people, local application, they did. They turned and looked to the Lord and called out for the Lord to help them. Do you remember when Rav Shaka, you know, the trash talker, and Sanhariv besieged the city with 180,000 soldiers? They, they looked over the wall that night, and Hezekiah and the men of Israel were shaking in their sandals, thinking, we're toast. The Syrians are going to wipe us out. And the Lord's saying, no, not one arrow will be shot, uh, but these guys are going to be destroyed. And the next morning, it says, they woke up and saw all of them as dead men. What's that? the whole army of the, the Syrian army there camping outside of the walls of Jerusalem, they were dead, killed by, the Bible said, 
one huge honking angel. The angel killed the whole army. And, um, and they were saved that day. And so that's kind of the local near prophecy that he's starting to refer to. They were in poverty, they were in famine, they were in trouble, they were besieged, but then they would turn their affection, their attention, and look to the maker, and their eyes will have respect to the Holy One of Israel. That's the Lord himself. Now, one of the things they would do, when you turn to look at the Lord in your life, that usually means you're turning from something else. Um, And that's exactly what it said here in verse 8. It says, and he, the person who just turned to the Lord to look to the banker, verse 8, he shall not look to the altars, the work of his hands, neither shall respect that which his fingers have made, uh, either the groves or the images. You see, the Jews were at this proclivity to go and worship altars of idols and, and burn incense to these idols and worship in the groves. That's a um, a place where they did all kinds of abominable acts against the Lord toward these fake pagan deities, the groves, and then also the images that they had made. And so it says here, Isaiah says, they're going to turn from those groves, those images, the altars of the paganism, and they would turn to the true maker, of the Lord himself, as it says here, the Holy One of Israel. And that's what they did during that reign. This prophecy of Isaiah came to pass exactingly. But see, this is the near application. The far, there's going to come a time where Israel's going to be fat and happy, but eventually they're going to get into real trouble. And they too are going to turn their eyes, verse 7, to the man that will look to his maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. Did you know that the Jews largely right now don't look to Jesus at all? There's only a few Jews around the world, that, you know, and they're noteworthy, <laughs> that believe in Jesus Christ. Most of the Jews don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. And during the tribulation period, there's going to come a time where Jews will be duped and they'll fall for this coming world leader called the Antichrist. They'll sign a peace treaty, Daniel chapter 9 tells us, with this guy. And um, it'll probably allow for them to build their temple on the Temple Mount um, there's all kinds of things that are going to happen there. But halfway through, and we, we talked about this on Wednesday night, or through the Bible study in Isaiah, halfway through the tribulation period, this world leader that they're going to follow, he'll demand to be worshipped there on the Temple Mount, in the temple, the newly built temple in Jerusalem. And suddenly the Jews will realize, man, we have been duped. And, you know, we talked about this, um, you know, where they would flee to the uh, lost city of Petra, uh, Moab of Jordan. And we covered that on Wednesday night, how that's all going to work out and what is, what's going to happen with all that stuff. Um, but what are they going to do when the Jews run from the Antichrist who's going to make war against them? And, and the Bible, we talked about the vomiting out of the flood that would come out of his mouth to try to destroy the Jews. It's language of the book of Revelation, how this Antichrist would try to wipe out the Jews. Who's ever heard of a person who wanted to exterminate all the Jews? <laughs> that happens throughout all of history, whether you're talking about Pharaoh or, you know, uh, um, you know Haman, or uh, you could go on and on throughout the history, but Hitler, um, th- this Antichrist is going to do the same thing, try to wipe out the Jews. But they'll flee to the wilderness of Moab, which is in Jordan, this area of Petra, and it says the Lord's going to help them, and the earth is going to swallow up that vomit, whether it's an army or a flood of water or disease, we don't know. We talked about that on Wednesday. But it's at that point that the Jews will turn and look to their maker 
and exalt and worship the Holy One of Israel. You see, this is where that fulfillment is going to be in sort of dual. The, the local Isaiah application, but then the last days, um, uh, the, the Bible talks about what's going to happen to the nation Israel. They're going to turn. They're going to leave their idolatry. You know, speaking of idolatry, you say, but they're not worshiping Moloch or Ashtoreth or Baal today. But they really are, as, and so are we, many of us as Americans, because those idols, it's not as much the, the, the wood, the stone, the gold, the silver, the, you know, whatever. It's more about what's behind those statues and those idols. And it was greed and wealth, prosperity, and, um, uh, you know, all those things, uh, popularity um, and fruitfulness, uh, all that stuff. And, and so the Jews still are worshiping. If you go to Tel Aviv, 70% of the Jews in Tel Aviv are, are atheists. That's an amazing thing. It's a very secular town, Tel Aviv. It's like going to Dallas. It's very modern. Um, it's very um, worldly, uh, very godless. Uh, then you go to Jerusalem, and that's where there's still remnants of the history of Israel's uh, spiritual quality. But Tel Aviv, not so. All that to say, that's going to come to an end. There's going to come a time where the Jews will turn and see that Jesus is the Messiah. Romans chapter 11, verse 25 says, you know, that we as, um, you know, Gentiles, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, the church age, then I think we're going to be raptured. And then that's when it says all of Israel will be saved. That's what this is talking about in verse 7, when it says, in that day, a man shall look to his maker and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. That's when the Jews turn and see that Jesus is the Messiah. God's not done with the Jews. Uh, God's got a plan to save the Jews, but it's going to come at a great time of peril and brutality. And it's not going to be the Syrians, and it's not going to be Rabshakeh uh, and uh, Sanharib. It's going to be Antichrist and his uh, demonic forces, the Bible says, in the future. That's going to happen. So they're going to turn from their images and their altars of paganism to the true and living God. And then it says in verse 9, And in that day shall his strong cities be as a forsaken bough and an uppermost branch which they left because of the children of Israel, and there shall be desolation. Because thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation and hast not been mindful of the rock of of thy strength, therefore thou shalt, um, shalt thou plant pleasant plants and shalt eat it with strange slips. In that day thou shalt make thy plant to grow, and in the morning thou shalt make thy seed to flourish. But the harvest shall be a heap in the day of grief and of desperate sorrow. The idea is you're going to go on thinking everything's going to be rosy and good, and you're going to plant your plants, and everything's going to be great, but your plants are not going to produce fruit, and you're going to be in real trouble. You know, this is a language that you and I, we don't really understand uh, what a heap of sorrow is when your crops aren't turning out. But in Bible times, that would have been a way to say, man, you're toast. You're going to go through time of real despair and thinness and famine. Um, That's the bummer. Uh, The bummer is the Jews right now are flourishing. They're one of the most powerful nations in the world. They're one of the most prosperous nations in the world. When you go to Israel, you know, when I take groups to Israel, one of the things they all notice is how, wow, it's like being in the United States. It's very Western. It's very nice. uh, It's clean, uh, you know, and and there's there's wealth and prosperity. Uh, That's going to come to an end uh, when we get closer to the end times. Why? 
because the Lord's going to use their time of trouble to turn the Jews back to Jesus, to the Lord, the, the Messiah. And uh, this is what this is describing here, that leanness during the time when the Jews are going to be shaken up. By the way, when's that all going to happen? The, the purpose of the tribulation, that seven-year period, is a time to, of course, pour out the wrath of God on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. But it's also, that seven-year period, it's going to be a time to um, revive Israel and to, to wake up a nation, the nation of the Jews. Right now, they're sort of in slumber, in poverty of, of, of everything else. They're, they're rich in possession, and, and their nation's doing well, just like the Bible said it would. But when the end comes, the, the tribulation period is going to bring great trouble in Israel. And that's the sad part, because I have uh, friends in Israel that I love that are Jews that don't know Jesus, and uh, they're going to go through times of real trouble. But the purpose of that is to wake up a nation and to cause the Jews to see Jesus as the Messiah. And that's, gonna, that's what this is all talking about. In the future, they're going to think they're going to be pr- fruitful, but they're going to be in real trouble. That's the idea. Day of real sorrow, verse 11 says. And then he starts to describe something that, that starts to go way past Isaiah's day. This for sure is that part where it's talking about more of a global situation. Check it out, verse 12. Woe to the multitude of many people which make a noise like the noise of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them. Who is going to be rebuked? The nations, all the nations. He's going to rebuke them, and they shall flee far, far off and shall be chased as the chaff of the mountains before the wind and like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. And behold, at evening tide trouble, and before the morning he is not. This is the portion of them that spoil us and the lot of them that rob us. Isaiah saying, those that rob us and spoil us, Rabshakeh, Sanhariv, the Syrians, they're going to, this, this verse 14 is describing that story of the, the dead men in the morning. Remember, it says in the night there was, there was trouble when they looked over and saw the Assyrian army, but in the morning he is not, or he is dead. Verse 14 is describing that, but it's ascribing that same motif to what's going to happen when all the nations gather against Israel, just like Rabshakeh, only globally. And this is describing none other than the battle of Armageddon. Verses 12 through 14, where the nations will be gathered against Israel and against the Lord. And that battle is being sort of foretold by Isaiah the prophet. This is one of the very early um, mysterious mentions of that day where the nations are going to be gathered uh, to, to battle against the Jews. And the Antichrist is going to lead that battle against the Jews. Now, um, the Bible talks about that battle. In fact, why don't you keep your finger here and go with me to Revelation chapter 16. I want to show you how that's going to shake out in the far interpretation of what Isaiah is talking about. Um, the, the, the Antichrist, the, the, by the way, one of the nicknames of the Antichrist is the Assyrian. Um, and it has to do with this link that Isaiah is putting together as the pictures. That first story is a picture of the global thing that's going to happen in the far story. But that's talked about in the book of Revelation. Remember, Revelation 6 through 19 talks about this tribulation period that's going to come seven years in the future. At the end of that period, there's going to be a, a battle like none other. And it's going to happen in the 
near the hill of Megiddo. There's, a, there's an ancient city there called Megiddo, and there's a valley before Megiddo. And that's what Armageddon is, the hill of, of Megiddo and the valley of Armageddon is right before it there. And it's a place where this last battle is going to be fought. Um, and uh, it's, Napoleon actually rode through there. In fact, all the armies of the world rode through that area. The Greeks, the Medes and the Persians, the Babylonians. It's, a, it's an area of that region you have to march through and take if you're going to take the, the known world strategically important. And that's why Napoleon looked over the Valley of Armageddon and he said, surely this is where the last battle will be fought. Uh, He knew that even strategically um, that that's what would happen, let alone biblically. But in the tribulation, here's John the apostle in his mysterious language talking about how this is going to happen, that these nations of the world are going to be gathered in this valley of Armageddon. Let's pick it up in Revelation chapter 16 is where this battle is, is described in John's sort of mysterious language. Um, he says in Revelation 16, 12. Um, now keep in mind, this is where uh, these angels are pouring out these bowls of wrath, and each bowl has worse things in it, and they kind of consecutively get worse and worse. Well, on the sixth bowl, that's what we're at here. In Revelation 16, uh, verse 12, it says, and the sixth angel poured out his vial or his bowl upon the great river Euphrates. That's there in Iraq, and it feeds the lifeblood of sort of the Levant area and that whole region of the world. They're going to pour out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof will be dried up, uh, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Do you remember um, a few weeks ago when we were talking about Satan, how he's a duplicator and an imitator, and how he's got his own little unholy trinity, sort of trying to copy God, but in a really weak way? Well, this is one verse that has all three of those entities. These frogs come out of the... Um, sorry, I have a frog in your throat. Um, <laughs> these frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Those are the three sort of parts of the unholy, demonic, satanic kind of trinity that's going to happen during the tribulation period. I'm glad we're not going to be there for this. But what comes out of their mouths? These unclean spirits, these demonic spirits that are like frogs. And it says here, look at verse 14, for they are the spirits of devils, these frogs, working miracles. Interesting. Be careful, Christians. Just because people are working miracles and look like something amazing or even holy, Miracles don't necessarily mean God's behind it. Satan can be behind miracles. I hope you know that. A lot of people have been duped by miracles, so-called. And I think the enemy still uses that. Um, So be careful about miracles. But these these demons are going to work miracles which go forth to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to, verse 14, middle part, to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. And he gathered them, the nations of the world, together into a place in the Hebrew tongue called Armageddon. This is that part in the book of Revelation. At the end of the tribulation period, after this total brutality for seven years, these unclean spirits are going to gather the nations to battle. And these unclean spirits, like frogs, and what are they going to be saying? They're going to be saying this, go to Megiddo go to Megiddo. (laughs) 
that, that sounds like a frog to me. Sorry. But that's what these unclean demonic frogs are going to be saying is go to Megiddo uh, and go and, and the nations will gather themselves and march into that valley. And the Bible says it's going to be a bloody battle. The blood will flow in places as deep as the horse's mane. Um, it's, it's a strange battle that, that you know, uh, the Antichrist is going to be there in the Valley of Armageddon and on the mountains of Israel. And they're going to be there battling against the Jews. He's going to want to kill Jews. But eventually, that's where Christ in the battle is going to return. That's the second coming of Christ. When you read in Revelation 19, the return of Christ, he comes as a conquering king. And he's coming with 10,000s of his saints. Who are that? That's us. And that battle is suddenly the world's armies are going to turn their weapons toward the Lord himself. Good luck with that. There's not much of a future in that. I wouldn't recommend that. Uh, Better to be broken before the Lord, to be crushed by the Lord. And these people in that battle, in that day, are going to be crushed by a conquering king, Jesus. He's not coming as a carpenter, the second coming. He's coming as a a conqueror. He's not coming to be judged by man. He's coming to be the the judge over all men. Um, And he's going to rule and reign. He'll he'll wipe out those nations. He'll rule and reign from Jerusalem. That's what the battle of Armageddon does. It sort of mops up all the mess of uh, the tribulation period. And then once the battle of Armageddon is cleaned up, that's when Christ rules from Jerusalem. That brings in the millennial kingdom, a thousand years of blessing on the earth when Christ intervenes. So that's a long description of what's coming, really, of the battle of Armageddon. Now you say, okay, Brett, got it. The battle of Armageddon, Isaiah's gaze goes past Rabshakeh and the Assyrians and the Syrians, and, and it seems that he's talking more of the global gathering of people to that same place. Um, and it's, it's, I see the parallel there, you might say. Okay, there is a, uh, uh, Isaiah's gaze goes into more of a global kind of situation. So when you see that, what does that mean to you and me? Well, this, this is where you and I, I think, can learn that when is this battle of Armageddon going to happen? Is that, is that something that could happen in the near future? Because when Isaiah gave this prophecy, this would be thousands of years ago when Isaiah gave this prophecy. And uh, you'd say, that's such a long time, and that dual fulfillment or second fulfillment, it's, it's, is, are we getting close to that? I believe the answer is yes. And Isaiah 17 gives you and me sort of a, um, a hint that we could be very close to the gathering of those nations in the Valley of Armageddon. Why? Well, let's go back to Isaiah 17. Let me show you something. Um, there, the very first verse that we read today, it said, the burden of Damascus. Um, and one of the things that Isaiah puts together here is the destruction of Damascus will be around the same time period as this battle that would happen to uh, the Jews and Rabshak and all that. And I believe that Isaiah's second fulfillment, the dual fulfillment part, the far part, is also going to very much involve Damascus. You see, the, the, the part of this prophecy that is probably the most modern is the description of verse 1. The burden of Damascus, behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap, or some of your newer translations say a heap of ruin. But here's the thing. I told you earlier, Damascus is the oldest city in the world. Some people say it's Jer- Jericho. Others say it's Thessaloniki, but, um, or Thessalonica. But, um, but um, arguably, Damascus is the oldest city in the world that's still working today. It's never been uninhabited. It has been conquered and crushed and beat up. 
Um, but it's never been ceasing from being a, a city. And this prophecy very specifically says it'll not only cease from being a city, but there won't even be any people in the near towns. It'd be like saying Portland ceases to exist, but along with, you know, Tualatin and Beaverton and Gresham, uh, that's what it says there in verse 2 when it says the cities of Eroh are, are forsaken. They shall be for flocks which lie down and none shall make them afraid. What's that? It's going to be only where animals go. By the way, if you want to read an interesting article, see how the animals are doing at Chernobyl. Um, look at the pictures online of Chernobyl where the nuclear accident happened in, in former Soviet Union. And now it's empty. There's, it's an empty city with weeds growing up. It's kind of this creepy thing. But as it turns out, these radioactive animals are just doing really well. It's flourishing. There's, there's wild beasts running around Chernobyl, this empty city. It's kind of an amazing story. That's the imagery that you kind of see here. That Damascus will become a ruinous heap or a heap of ruin where no one will ever live there again. And even the greater cities around there will cease to exist and only animals will live there. What's going to happen to Damascus? Well, see, that's where it brings us to today in a radical way. Are we on the, on the verge of an Armageddon? I believe the Bible's given us a hint here that the destruction of Damascus is going to be a key to when the battle of Armageddon actually takes place. Um, what, what's going on with Damascus today? As it turns out, while we've been focusing on the coronavirus, you know, it's like the little jiggly bob over here that we're all looking at. Okay, look at the jiggly bob. And, and we're all, oh, look at over there. Meanwhile, over here, do you know what's been going on in the Middle East? This is one of the things I wanted to bring up in the prophecy update, but you kind of run out of, out of time. But did you know that Israel's been shooting missiles at Damascus the last several days? Uh, starting May 1st, a, a new sort of barrage of attacks have been happening. While the world's worried about the coronavirus and social distancing, um, the Jews have been doing what they do best, and that is protecting themselves as a nation. See, here's the deal. What's going on in Damascus today? Remember I told you, you can see the glowing lights of Damascus from the mountains of Israel in the Golan Heights. You can see that. It's, it's right on the border of Israel. Who controls Damascus? Who's there? Well, Syria is a mess right now. The, the civil war in Syria has been kind of brutal for a long time. And um, I've done teachings on, you know, Syria and all the nations involved. And we've, we could talk about the Russians and all that. But one of the main things you need to understand is the Iranians— the Iranians are controlling parts of and, and, and fortifying parts of Syria, Damascus included. The Iranians have, have no uh, pretense. They want to blow Israel off the map. The leaders of Iran have said, we want to destroy Israel. We want to drive them into the sea. Israel should be, you know, a nation for Arabs, not for Jews. Um, you know, and, and that's been old news. So what do you think Israel's going to do when the Iranians are stockpiling weapons on their border? That's what's happening. Right now, the Russians are assisting in helping Iranians get weapons right on the northern border of Israel. Um, man, we can talk about the Gog-Magog invasion. Maybe that's going to be a part of this equation where the Iranians and the Russians are part of the Gog-Magog in invasion of Israel. But maybe that'll be a part of this destruction of Damascus because here's what's happened. About 15 years ago or so, uh, the Iranians, and, and, and when you hear the term Hezbollah, you have to understand that those are, those are uh, people funded, supported, uh, weaponized 
by the Iranians. Hezbollah, just think Iran, Iranian. So, you know, Lebanon's a lost cause, sad to say. It used to be one of the most beautiful countries in all that region of the world. Now it's total destruction because Hezbollah took over and they've ruined it. But now Hezbollah is not only there, but they're also in Syria and they're stockpiling weapons in Damascus. Now, here's the problem. Um, A lot of the rockets that have come from the north of Lebanon and also from Syria traditionally have been these kind of goofy Katusha rockets. They're, they're sort of prehistoric rockets from another era um, that really are not very good. They, they're not accurate, and they've, they've sort of shot these rockets over the border for years. But about 15 years ago, the Iranians and others started bringing more high-tech, modernized weapons and missiles to Damascus. And th- some say that there's more than 10,000 missiles aimed toward Israel um, even as much as 15 years ago. And the Jews, they're not in a position where they can take a missile. Um, you know, we, we as Americans don't get this. You know, Israel's the size of New Jersey. It's tiny in a huge area of nations of Arabs. And they don't have a second chance. You know, if, if, if uh, let's just say China nuked New York City, what would happen? What would happen if that happened? Well, first of all, New York City, what a bummer. We'd lose a city. But that would only awake a sleeping giant, sort of like Pearl Harbor was to the Japanese. That's what would happen. Suddenly America would wake up and say, we just got nuked and we lost a massive city and millions of people. We would probably uh, rise up and smash China. That's what we would do. Israel doesn't have that luxury. If they are nuked, their little tiny country of New Jersey, and um, the, by, the, by the way, um, the, the news paints it like I, Israel's this huge place and the Jews are occupying this huge area of land in the Middle East. Total lies. Look at a map. All you gotta do is look at a map. If you took all the Arab land over there and represented that with the size of a football field, Israel would be one square foot of that entire football field. That's how much the Jews have taken for themselves. Um, a land that God gave to them, a land that the world gave to them after World War II, and everybody's calling them occupiers now. It's ridiculous. It's a totally ridiculous story. But they've taken this tiny little sliver of land, and so the Jews don't have a second option. So the Jews militarily have what they call the Samson option. And that is the Jews, before they go down, they're going to take everybody down with them. Remember when Samson pushed the pillars and their military has a a tactic they call the Samson option. And that is, if anybody nukes us, you better believe all the nations around here are going to be smashed with their... Israel's had nuclear weapons, even though they didn't really admit it for the longest of time. Uh, Here's what happened about 15 years ago. The Jews, the prime minister of Israel said, listen, if one of those missiles or rockets, the, the, the high-tech ones, if one of those comes across our border from Damascus, Israel said, we promise we will make Damascus a parking lot. Now, when the Jews make a promise like that from Israel, the world kind of knows, uh, <laughs> yeah, you don't mess with Israel. When they're, when they're making that kind of a declare, declaration, uh, Israel's going to be good for their word on that. When, when the Jews make a military threat, no one in the world in their right mind would just kind of mock at that because the Jews have always come through uh, in biblically proportioned ways, by the way. So when the Jews made that threat, all of us Bible students of prophecy, when we read that Damascus is going to be a parking lot someday, Damascus is going to be destroyed where no one will ever inhabit that city ever again. 
Um, isn't it interesting? The Bible says that's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. That prophecy of Isaiah 17 hasn't been fully seen where Damascus is uninhabitable, but it's going to happen. What would make Damascus uninhabitable? Just a theory, but what happens if Israel says, okay, enough of the Hezbollah, enough of these rockets, enough of the Iranians uh, stacking weapons on our northern border, and the Jews just say, we're done with this. See, right now they're shooting missiles at Damascus and southern Syria to these stockpiled weapons of Iranians. That's happening as we speak. But if it gets bad enough, I could see a scenario where tomorrow, nobody'd be shocked, really. It might be shocking if they use a nuclear weapon. But nobody would be surprised that the Jews finally said, we're not going to allow Iranians who want to nuke us, who want to wipe us out. Nobody would be shocked if Israel defended themselves. This is what would happen. I think the way the world works on this is the world would say, oh, shame on Israel. That was horrible. They did that. But in a way, the rest of the world would be like, well, phew, at least we don't have to worry about the Iranians anymore. Because see, the world's kind of freaked out about the Iranians getting a nuclear weapon. And, and uh, there's a lot of talk about that in and of itself. But the Jews will one day, I believe, fulfill this prophecy of Isaiah where they level Damascus. It's going, to be, it's going to be wiped out and no one will live there ever again. Oldest city in the world, never uninhabited. This prophecy is yet to happen. When that happens, I believe that Armageddon is nearby. It's going to happen quickly following right after that. I think these two things of Armageddon and the destruction of Damascus will be very close. You say, but that's scary stuff. I don't know if I like that. Well, here's the thing. Remember, if you're a Christian, you and I are going to be taken up to be with the Lord. Why? Because before the Lord pours his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world, I believe he's going to take his people out. It's called the rapture of the church. It's not a secret rapture. That's the people that don't like to believe in the rapture. Uh, they call it a secret rapture. I don't know why they call it that. It's not a secret. It's going to, everybody's going to know it. I'm telling you about it right now. So it's not a secret anymore. Um, and it's going to be very real. First Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us that those of us that are alive and remain will be caught up and it says there that we can comfort one another with these words. And it says in chapter 4 and 5 that we are not appointed unto wrath as Christians, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together with these words. That's what we're called to do. So we're not going to be here during all this stuff. Here's the thing. If we see the new king, you and I as Christians of, of Damascus, man, look to, the, look to the sky for the Lord's return is near. I believe could be very soon. Nobody knows the day or the hour, but the Bible says we will know the seasons and the times. The relationship that Israel has with Damascus right now is they're shooting missiles uh, at Syria as we speak. I believe it should make you and I more aware that, boy, the whole thing could come down at any minute. You and I very much could be living in the last days. And I think that's exciting. It's not scary if you're a Christian because, man, it's not about doom and gloom. It's about boom and zoom, the rapture of the church taken up to be with the Lord. Um, when I talk about this stuff, I, I, I kind of have this sort of dual response in my heart. First of all, I'm overjoyed. I'm excited. I get to be with the Lord in heaven and the rapture of the church, and it's going to be glorious. But there's another side of me that sort of grieves. And that is, I know so many people who have yet to hear the gospel. So many people are still lost in their sin. So many people that are still, you know, um, not believing in the true and the living God that cares about them. And that's why, honestly, I do what I do. Because I'm excited about going to heaven, but I also want to share the gospel to anyone who will hear. 
And I'm telling you, you know, maybe you don't know all the details of all the stuff I just went over. I went over a lot of things kind of quickly. Sorry about that. But if what, what I'm saying is true, don't you think the Bible deserves a little more of a close look rather than just a quick read through? Oh, yeah, yeah, I read the Bible. The Bible is full of this stuff where it predicts things that are going to happen. And we're seeing things unfold that the Bible says, in the last days, this will happen, that will happen, the other will happen. And all these things are unfolding right before our eyes. Our prophecy update talked about the mark of the beast that the Bible says. And man, we are right on the cusp of that happening. We're not going to be there when that comes down. Christians say, I'm worried I might take the mark of the beast. You're not going to be here when that happens. You and I are going to be in heaven when that whole system gets kicked into gear. Um, And all that to say, man, I, I think we have something to really be looking forward to. But it also gives us, you and me as Christians, our marching orders. We should be busy about the kingdom of God, teaching people of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that their, their sins don't have to doom them to death and destruction, but you can be forgiven of your sins. You can be on the right side of this battle. Um, and you do that by accepting the work of Jesus Christ. I conclude with that. If you're not a Christian, man, I, I want to challenge you to really think about this. Why would I want to be a Christian? It's not to make your life rich or, you know, happier or better. It's to save you from hell. That's somewhere the church lost our direction on that. You you, you watch some of these preachers on TV and they talk about how we'll be victorious in this life and everything's going to be rosy. That's not what Christians, usually Christians and historically, their lives got worse once they became Christians. That's because that's not what it's about. It's about eternal life and being saved from death and hell. And you see, right now, the Bible says, if you're a sinner, which you are, the wages of sin is death, eternal death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you want to accept Jesus, the work of the cross, see, instead of you paying for your sins, Jesus said, I'll take that. I'll pay your penalty. And he did that when he went to the cross, dying for the sins of the world. And then he rose up from the grave, just like he said he would. And when Jesus died on the cross and, and rose from the grave, what he did was the proof positive that he was the Messiah. And, and, and that's, that's why you really should give it a look and, and change your heart and repent of your sins. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ, that God raised him from the dead, it says you will be saved. Nothing you did to deserve it or earn it. You can't gain God's favor God already wants to give you his favor. Favor, It's a free gift. And so, man, why not? Why wouldn't you accept Christ and be saved? This is a day where events are all around us, whether you're talking about the plague of coronavirus and the way the world's responding to it, or Damascus, or any of the other biblically uh, prophetic things that are coming to pass right now. These are evidences that would make me think twice about not really accepting the work of God. Be saved. Have the hope of heaven. Accept Jesus and you'll be, your life will be changed. doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. It just means you're perfectly forgiven. That's what Christianity really is. If you're one who'd like to do that, accept Christ, would you just pray a simple prayer of confession? The Bible makes it easy for us. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus, you'll be saved. I'd like to lead a little prayer right now because maybe there's some of you out there right now who would say, yep, I want that. 
then, then just pray this simple prayer. Would you bow your heads, please, with me? And Christians, maybe you could be in prayer right now, praying for the unsaved, that they would have ears to hear this message of salvation. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins, that he rose from the grave, and that I'm forgiven. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. We encourage you to take advantage of our media ministry by visiting us at athecreek.com anytime. There we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download.